0: Okay. Okay. So I will, I will officially document my apology. Um, I was working overnight. And uh, uh, as you can tell, I'm still still here uh, in the hospital. I work in healthcare. Um, so my name is Charlie. I'm an alcoholic. Um, and I want to say, first of all, what a joy it's been to uh, connect with TUSNUA. Um I have my friend Todd to thank for that. And um, I, I've been in recovery for some years now. But Um, I've been kind of looking for something to keep it fresh, and uh, definitely Tusnua Nua um, has has done that. Um, So, uh, let's see. Um, I uh, I grew up in uh, uh, an affluent suburb of New York City, Um, and I always felt like I didn't have a right to be an alcoholic, because while my mother had uh, working-class, first-generation immigrant uh, roots, uh, my father was from a prominent Southern family uh, in Savannah, Georgia. So, uh, you know, certainly financially, uh, we were all set. And um, in the suburb I grew up in, uh, it was our neighborhood was full of really successful people. Um, the guy that lived across the street uh, used to play with his son. He was a, a very respected hematologist at Columbia University. And um, I don't know if any of you remember the Elliott Spitzer scandal uh here in the united states but elliot spitzer actually went to high school with my brother and uh my dad's cousin was a a very uh esteemed gynecologist at columbia university uh, who lived about half a mile away and across the street from him lived the simon family and their daughter carly simon uh, who turned out to be uh, have a very successful career Uh, used to babysit for me and my two brothers. Um, But inside that home, it was just sheer bedlam. Uh, I mean, it was just total chaos. Uh, My mother was mentally ill um, and uh, had really severe paranoia um, and was, was prone to rage. And one of my earlier memories, I think I was probably in my, I was probably 13, but I remember, I don't know what I did to set her off, but She just came after me, you know, down the hallway and I managed to scramble into my bedroom and get the door closed. And we had these little locks on the handle. And I I got the handle lock closed. And she grabbed a hammer and just started banging away at the center of the door. And, you know, those doors are, are thin plywood. And I remember putting my hands up on the door and she was just cracking through the door. I mean, the wood was splitting and paint chips were flying off and she's yelling about how she's going to bash my skull in. Um, And it was just very frightening. It always reminded me. I don't know if you've seen the movie The Shining, uh, but remember that scene where Jack Nicholson has the axe and he's breaking into the door that's what it felt like. And uh, just, I remember growing up with this overwhelming anxiety um, because there was just no safety at home. Um, my dad was was really, um, I mean, he had a lot of problems of his own. Um, he was just a very angry, unhappy man. Um, so we, we had no safety really growing up. And um, my initial uh, memories of alcohol were actually very good um, because my dad would come home I'm going to keep an eye on the time here, but my dad would come home and uh, his three boys would run down and he would open one bottle of beer. Um, He wasn't much of a drinker and he would get out three glasses and pour a little bit in for each of his sons and he would drink the other half. And, you know, it was a very nice kind of bonding thing. And him being a Southern aristocrat, Um, You know, I learned at a very early age, the difference between uh, single malt scotch and and blended scotch. And, uh, you know, I remember him showing me how to pour cognac and a snifter and and nose it. And the worst sin to him, and uh, the European folks can probably relate to this, the worst sin to him was to put ice cubes in good quality whiskey, uh, which, you know, we do all the time here in the United States. But that was, I mean, that I knew that at like eight years old. Um, but my first, my first drunk happened when my parents had this uh, dinner party they used to throw. And the guests would have cocktails in the living room uh, and then go into the dining room, uh, dining room and dine. And my older brother and I, I was eight years old, uh, snuck down into the living room and started eating hors d'oeuvres and uh, drinking like half leftover drinks. So we, we downed, uh, oh, probably it was the equivalent of like two, uh, two, two full drinks. And then we ran upstairs and my older brother was probably about 25% heavier than me. And within like 15 minutes, we were laying on his bed. I mean, he's like nauseated. He's ready to throw up. He's clearly like not feeling good. And I remember at eight years old, looking at the ceiling spinning around and thinking, wow, this is really cool. I, I like this. So my first drunk was at eight years old, uh, if you can believe that. Um, and it, looking back, I mean, that's an alcoholic brain, isn't it? You know, I mean, what, what eight-year-old kid likes that? And his, his older brother, who's sizably bigger, uh, is, is obviously sick. So at thirteen, I got introduced to marijuana by my uh, my, my older brother. Uh, really liked it. Um, You know, he had it very controlled. we would do it occasionally in the evening as a treat. And within a month, you know, I was wanting to like, it was in the summer. So we were out of school, you know, I was wanting to get started, like in the morning. (laughs) And he said, What are you doing? We don't smoke marijuana in the morning. I said, Well, you know, that's what I would do. And again, that that obsession with excess. Um, So at around 13, I was in uh, eighth grade, and um, I think I mentioned this earlier, but uh, I was befriended by my social studies teacher. Uh, My parents had gone through a really bad divorce, and uh, my dad was really absent. I mean, he just wasn't a very engaged father. So this uh, young man who was my social studies teacher kind of took me under his wing, and I was his favorite student, and he made me feel special. Um, and I I really found that reinforcing, and he was a a brown belt in karate, which I was fascinated by at the time, Um, so uh, I think I graduated from junior high, so I was right out of eighth grade, and he said, you know, if you want, after you graduate, you know, come over to my apartment, and we can start, you know, doing karate, and I'll I'll teach you some of it, which, like, I really uh, jumped at that, so um, I started doing that and um, I don't wanna trigger anybody because I know there are other survivors here, but uh, within a short time, um, it got into very inappropriate touching and then it progressed to nudity and it involved marijuana and it involved him buying me alcohol. You know, I was 14 years old and um, I never thought that it affected me that much because there are much, much worse uh, sexual abuse stories I never felt like it was that out of control, Um, and um, I I don't want to be too graphic, but I mean, there wasn't any sodomy or penetration, but it was highly, highly inappropriate uh, touching, and um, I think it all surfaced during the Jerry Sandusky case, I don't know if you remember that here in the United States, he was a football coach and he got busted, and uh thankfully I was five years into recovery then and, and in therapy, but uh all of that stuff emerged. And apparently that that sexual abuse kind of sort of put the icing on my um cake of intimacy difficulties. Uh it was really hard for me to trust. And I think the the, the physicality of that took a big toll on me. Um, but you know, it also involved drugs and marijuana. Um, so I went through college without too much trouble, um, got out and took a couple of years off, um, was uh, really into a lot of marijuana and alcohol. Um, and my parents were really on me because, you know, they'd invested in college and what are you doing? And, you know, I had one dead end job after another. Uh, I was a horrible employee. I think I got fired from just about every job. And at one point I was, I was driving an ambulance because I was in- interested in healthcare. And um, they just my partner and I would smoke dope and drink beer, and we we go around. You know, I mean, this was an ambulance. I mean, it was just so irresponsible. Um, But I had moved into a dental fraternity house just because it was cheap rent. It was like sixty dollars a month, and I watched the dental students come in who were about my age, and I watched them go through school. And my parents were on my back. So I thought, let me apply to dental school. So I I did and um, took the exam and um, I had decent grades. So I got into dental school and started that. And my first year, my dad was diagnosed with lung cancer. Um, And I remember him, he was a physician. And I remember him telling us growing up that um, the medical students when he was in school around exam time would just go into the pharmacy and scoop up uh, a handful of amphetamines and and take them through exams, and that's what they did. Um, And I I wanna backtrack quickly, because what I didn't tell you is when we were growing up, um, controlled substances or the drugs like opioids and amphetamines, they really weren't controlled. The Controlled Substances Act came out in the early 70s here. So my dad being a physician, when we would grow up, I mean, boxes of um, amphetamines would just land at our doorstep with the utility bills, you know, uh, quaaludes came out and my dad being a physician, the pharmaceutical company wanted to supply doctors with a lot, so uh, I, I remember uh, valium, dexedrine, all, uh, they're called rainbows on the street, uh, reds, which are secobarbital, barbiturate. all of that stuff w- was in our house. And my dad had this huge box of it. He would keep on an open shelf at ground level in the hallway in the home where his three kids were being raised. So uh, do you remember the uh, Rolling Stones song, Mother's Little Helper? Any of you remember that? Uh, That was my mother. When we would drive her crazy, she would go to the box and take a pill. And within 45 minutes, you know, she was like refreshed and ready to go. Um, And I think at age 12, I'd asked my dad what a barbiturate was. And my parents were of the mentality that if they satisfied our curiosity about drugs and alcohol, there wouldn't be a problem. And that worked really well for my brothers, but it didn't work well for me. So when I asked my dad what a barbiturate was, he explained it and he said, would you like to try one? And I I said, okay, you know, and he gives his, I I was probably 11 then. He gave me a dose of uh, barbiturate. It didn't do that much for me. So fast forward, um, I was in my second year of dental school. My dad was in, uh, I think he died about four months after that, but it was a really tough semester. And I remember asking him, um, you know, about the amphetamines and when he took in medical school and how would he feel about writing me a prescription for it. So he wrote me a prescription for 30 Ritalin tablets. And you may know Ritalin is also called methylphenidate, but it's uh, the short acting form of Adderall. And I remember studying until 11 o'clock at night and then taking the first dose and it was like uh, this, this veil that had been over my face just got lifted. I mean, suddenly the, the, the noise quieted in my brain and I could concentrate and the material was interesting. And it was just like what I was studying was jumping off the page. I, I had never felt that before. Um, and I, I mean, I knew that I really liked it. And he only gave me 30 tablets. Um, and uh, I think I went through those. I shared some with my roommates. And, but even with those 30, I was already using it before parties and using it to combine with alcohol. But I ran out and he died. And that was that. Um, finished dental school, went into practice. Um, and uh, the reality of life has always been very frightening for me. Um, So I've always found safety in education. Uh, It's always been a very nice place to kind of hide out. And I I sort of like the sense of intellectual growth. Um, So probably six months into dental practice, when most people would be committing to their life partner and starting their families, which petrified me, um, I decided I wanted to go to medical school. So um, I got my application together and, and applied and ended up getting into med school. Um, And um, I think during the dental practice, I I was starting to drink every night. Uh, I was starting to drink two or three beers just to unwind, but it still wasn't out of control. And the Ritalin had run out a couple of years before. So I went through med school, um, not a real problem. And one of the things I always liked about school was I was busy enough that it kept me from my addiction, or at least my substance addiction. Uh, my compulsiveness still uh, was still there definitely but that was very helpful Um, and then uh, let's see I went to medical school in Ohio and then I went to Indiana University Uh, shout out to Bridget I know you're a Hoosier Uh, but I went to Indiana University Medical Center for residency um, and that was in 1992 and there were weren't really a lot of regulations on resident work hours then. And I knew that it was going to be really stressful because they had about four hospitals at the medical center. um, And the residents had a lot of responsibility. uh, And they weren't supervised the way they are today. And there just weren't a lot of restrictions. Um, So it was extremely frightening at times. I suddenly had a lot of responsibility that I didn't feel qualified to manage. And there's a culture in medicine, and I, if we have time, I'll talk about this too, because I do some work now uh, with physicians, but the culture was always, you know, don't show weakness uh, and uh, neglect self-care. And the more you neglected self-care, the more respect you got, and you never wanted to show weakness. You were not allowed to be sick. And in a culture like that, uh, with that amount of stress, there's gonna be a certain number of people that are gonna start to turn to chemically coping. Um, So I noticed my drinking, I was starting to drink uh, at the end of the day, just because it unwound me. And I started dating a nurse uh, right after my internship. And she had a a son that uh, was was having some school problems and his pediatrician had prescribed Ritalin, because that's like what we throw out for kids here in the United States. It's like every kid that has a behavioral problem, you know, nobody looks at what's going on in their home, they just kind of throw drugs at them. Uh, but anyway, I remember, uh, telling Cindy was my girlfriend. I said, you know, I, I can take those off your hands. And it had been eight years since my dad died and I had had the Ritalin before. Um, but the difference this time was I was under a lot more stress. Um, and I, my, uh, drinking had started to pick up and, uh, boy, man, when I added the Ritalin, uh, that really, I mean, it was very useful because I was studying a lot because I, um, We have these uh, specialty board exams that we kind of prepare for. And there's just a lot of material to go through. Um, So it was really helpful for focus and concentration because I I do have ADD and that's kind of been a problem all along. Um, But I really like that Ritalin uh, and with the alcohol and just I would combine it and on weekends and I I would get preoccupied and look forward to it. And by the end of residency, uh, just I knew that it would be very hard for me to go without uh, either one of those—the alcohol or the Ritalin. Um, so, as um, Cindy, my girlfriend, was such a wonderful girl, and um, I just was not capable of intimacy or any kind of commitment. Um, and her her family had really taken me in, and her her dad died suddenly at the end of my residency. And uh, just, I remember sitting at the funeral with them and it felt like a family I never had. And I was just sobbing away with them. It was just so painful. Uh, but the pain was, uh, just hit my, my intimacy issues. And I, I ended the relationship right after that and then moved. Um, and I've always felt bad about that because I mean, she was such a sweet, loving woman and her family had been so good to me. Um, but I, I just couldn't, I couldn't do it. I just was not capable of, of the intimacy. And I, I, the thing I feel really bad about is, you know, she lost her dad and then she lost me uh, at the same time. And, you know, I, I compounded her pain. Um, it's something I still feel bad about, but um, I moved and I thought, well, this is good, you know, because I'm, I'm separated from my and source. Uh, so I just have alcohol now. Um, I moved out of state And for the next nine months, I didn't use Ritalin, I drank plenty, but the cravings, the the obsession with Ritalin would not go away. Um, So I got connected with a primary care doctor. And uh, if you don't know this, um, any doctor that has no experience with addiction is usually a pushover for an addict seeking to find medication. And me being a physician myself I knew exactly what to tell him to get the Ritalin and I I forgot what story I came up with but he had no idea uh, how I was manipulating him. And, uh, I mean, he, he didn't understand that Ritalin is abusable and he would give me like large numbers and, and put a lot of refills on them. And I was very careful because we have these drug monitoring programs in each state. And, uh, you know, if a doctor is prescribing too much or a patient is getting too much, it'll show up and it'll draw attention. So I was very careful to cover my tracks. I knew how many pills I had. Um, I would not call for early refills. Uh, I I only got it filled at one pharmacy. I paid cash. So my insurance didn't know about it. And uh, the Ritalin and the alcohol, you know, really started to escalate. Um, and I was working night shifts then. That's always been nice for me because, again, I, I don't have to deal with a lot of people. Um, and my wife had come on the scene. That's like a whole other story. But uh, I mean, I was in active addiction when she met me. Uh, her first gift to me were engraved uh, beer mugs. <laughs> and uh, um, then the, 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 the engagement gifts she gave to me were uh, Baccarat crystal brandy snifters with my initial, I mean, there was a very he- heavy alcohol theme and we had started dating and uh, we had gotten engaged uh, and uh, I just uh, that, yeah, that's a whole nother story. She was so enabling because her dad was a pharmacist that self-medicated. So when we would go to movies, she'd carry my whiskey bottle in her purse. And as soon as the lights would go down, she'd hand it to me and I could just sit there and you know just drink through the movie. And the problem was, I, I never thought I had blackouts, but I would never remember the second half of the movie. So the next day, she'd be talking about the film, and uh, you know, she'd mention something, and I'd try to distract her so uh, it wouldn't, uh, she wouldn't realize I had no idea what what had happened in the movie. Um, but anyway, um, I had a friend named Tony. Uh, that uh, at age 36, she was diagnosed with ovarian cancer. Um, and uh, it was obvious from the uh, disease that she was not going to live that much longer, and I saw how the healthcare system was uh, treating her. I think some of us have discussed this in fellowship, but um, she was just in a lot of pain and uh, suffering terribly, Um, and all her doctors could focus on was, you know, let's do this extra chemotherapy treatment, and let's do this extra surgery, and she she had really had a hard life. I mean, she grew up in poverty and just had had a lot of sexual trauma and domestic abuse. But we were friends. And, you know, I remember sitting with her and she was so upset and she asked me to help her and I had no idea what to do. And I got connected with a palliative care doctor in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, palliative care was in its infancy then. Um, but he kind of just gave me some guidelines. And I, I did a little bit. Um, and it made like all the difference in the world to her. Uh, but what I really gave her was a companion to go through the end of her life with. I, I companioned her down that road of, of uh, to end of life. And when she died, um, I, I looked at what I was doing at work because I was very good at procedures and resuscitating patients, and I, I could really keep people alive. I could keep heart rates going, and you know I knew how to manage ventilators, the breathing machine. Uh, but I had this this mid career epiphany. Um, So, I uh, applied for a palliative medicine fellowship and left the state for a year to do specialty training. Um, And I I really felt a commitment. I thought it would be a good thing. And when I got to fellowship, um, the difference was instead of doing shift work, um, this involved home call. You know, I was going to be on call at night and be on call at weekends. And I remember thinking, you know, this could be a problem with my drinking. Um, so I thought, okay, this will be good. This will be good for me to have a year where I, I can't just drink freely like that. And that lasted about a month. Um, and then I started drinking on call, you know, when I had to be available. And that was the first tip to me that, you know, this is not going in a good direction. And I used not drink, you know, uh, when I was on call. And I, I don't know why this is part of my whole history, but um, I never got caught and I don't know why, because I, I did this for a long time, but I had a system where um, most of the calls would come in before 11 at night. So I, I could kind of keep it to three or four drinks and be somewhat coherent uh, by by then. But after about 1030 or so, I, I could not control the drinking. And I just, it would just go off the rails. Um, and if anybody that knew me um, had called, uh, a nurse or another doctor or something, if they had called after about midnight, it would have been very obvious to them that I was impaired. And when I would get calls, I mean, I would be very careful, but, you know, I was given orders for, for medications and, and they were complex patients and it was just, and I'm glad nothing disastrous happened. Um, so we, uh, let's see, um, after, I'm going to speed it up here. Um, am I doing okay? Give me a nod. Everything okay? Okay. All right, good. I don't want to overstate and I'm kind of watching your body language to see if people are yawning or nodding off. Of course, the still frames are a little hard to read. Um, I got, after fellowship, I went up to Lexington because my fellowship was heavily hospice. It was inpatient hospice and it was home hospice. And I really, it was something I really connected with. I liked the environment. I felt very comfortable. Um, But I didn't have hospital palliative care experience. So I went to Lexington for my first job, Lexington, Kentucky, because it was a center of excellence. There were about six in the United States, and uh, it was a center of excellence for hospital palliative care. Um, So um, I went there for about a year and a half and learned a ton, but it was also extremely stressful because I was thrown in and there wasn't a lot of supervision. And, uh, you know, same Ritalin, you know, same alcohol. Um, and then uh, they wanted to start uh, a, a presence up in the northern part of the state here in Kentucky. So I wanted to do that because um, I, I knew that I had the skill set. I had worked really hard to learn palliative care. Um, I had done a fellowship in hospice, and I now I had the, the hospital part. So, I mean, I had all the pieces. So we moved up to northern Kentucky here, and Boy, that next 10 years, I hit my professional stride. I mean, I, I, I knew what I was doing. Uh, there were no other palliative specialists in this area. And it was really a, a nice time for me because with my low self-esteem and my, all my uh, insecurities, um, I really shined in that environment. And I think one of the things that's helped me as a physician is um, I've been able to take all that, that pain and uh, suffering that any addict alcoholic has. And um, I think I've been able to somehow incorporate that into my professional service that I offer. And when you're talking about palliative care patients, these are usually people, you know, with life limiting illnesses, or frankly, a lot of them are facing end of life. And I I learned that people are not so much afraid to die. um, Some are, but What they're afraid of is pain and suffering and they're afraid of being abandoned by the healthcare system. And I was really good at at, uh, pain and symptom management. I mean, I really got good at cancer pain management. And in those 10 years, the amount of suffering that I was able to relieve and the amount of connection that I had and the amount of the, the families and patients that I was able to kind of companion through that was just such a reinforcing thing. And you know, I would meet new patients, and they would say, "Oh, your your reputation precedes you," or you know, "Oh, the the uh, the nurses speak so highly of you." And it was just so soothing to my my uh, my ego, because I just always felt so inferior and so inadequate. Um, I was asked to give talks in the community, and uh, I would uh, speak at uh, there's a uh, local colleges nearby. I would. Talk to philosophy students that were taking classes on death and dying. And it was just a wonderful period, but the problem was my, my uh, drug and alcohol use was continuing to escalate despite all of this bad stuff happening. Um, and just to give you an idea, uh, Ritalin was a drug I would prescribe in palliative care a lot. So a typical dose I would start a patient on would be 2.5, two and a half milligrams in the morning and then in the early afternoon. And it's really good for what's called cancer-related fatigue. Cancer patients just get this real weakness, and it's very good for acute depression. So 2.5 milligrams twice a day might increase it to five if the patient's tolerating it. So I was up to 90, 90 milligrams of Ritalin. Um, and I, I was in my 40s, I started worrying about a cardiac event, because that's how people die of, of I mean, they, they get heart attacks when they're doing, you know, cocaine or methamphetamine or, or Ritalin. So rather than cut the dose down or get into recovery, my answer was, which seemed reasonable, is I would just pre-medicate myself with blood pressure medicine uh, an hour before I would start. And then I would just start taking the Ritalin and check my blood pressure every couple of hours and heart rate. And if it was okay, I'd keep going. And it was just the insanity of it. So I started, I'm gonna hurry up here. I started contemplating recovery because I was miserable, um, even though professionally things were going well, but I was really worried about my medical license and what kind of disciplinary action I would have. Um, so I joined the, uh, the Physicians Health Committee in our hospital system. Uh, active addiction. And the reason was I wanted to kind of see how they handled physicians that had addictive illnesses. And I started going to a conference every year that's in Lexington, about an hour and a half south of here, um, just to learn about addiction. And I would go to the conference and it's mostly healthcare professionals and they're all in recovery as are the speakers. And I I would be buzzing on Ritalin during the day and and drinking whiskey in my room at night at an addiction conference, but I still wasn't convinced that I was an addict or an alcoholic. Um, So the third time at that conference, one of the speakers ran a treatment center um, and I really liked what he said and it started to hit me, You know, I think you have a serious problem. So I called him anonymously um, and uh, we talked and he asked me all these questions nobody had ever asked. And I had never told anybody the extent of what I was doing. I mean, all the, my wife knew I I took Ritalin, but not nearly the extent, and you all know how hiding drinking from a a family, you know how that goes. It's, uh, I think we all do a certain amount of that, but I knew from his questions that he really knew what he was doing. I mean, he asked me about dosage and patterns and uh, preoccupation and cravings, And he said, you know, you've got the disease, it's not out of control, but you've got the disease. And that just hit me because somebody qualified had told me uh, that I had a problem. And I I think I consulted two other addiction specialists because I wanted somebody to say, yeah, you know, don't worry about it. But each one said the same thing, you know, that you have a problem and you need to do something about it. Um, So now I had two things I never had Uh, qualified people had listened to my story and told me, you know, you have an addictive illness. And two, I had talked to the state medical board anonymously about what was going to happen. And I knew what was waiting for me, which with physicians, uh, our licenses get suspended for three months, we get put in residential treatment for three months. And there's like a five year contract after that with random drug testing. And I, I really wanted to avoid that. So the addictionologist I talked to gave me some suggestions. And one was to go to AA meetings, which shocked me because I thought that was for alcoholics. But the other was to he he said, why don't you try experimental sobriety? And I like that term because it sounded temporary. I didn't think I had to do it forever. Um, So uh, I remember going to my first, it was a Caduceus meeting. Most communities have meetings for medical professionals and it's called Caduceus. And I went to my first one and uh, that was the missing piece. You know, I I had read about alcoholism. I had studied it, but what I was missing was the support of a 12-step group. Um, And uh, suddenly there were people around that had had lower bottoms than me, um, and people were calling me and saying, how are you doing, and uh, just I I felt support and I could come and talk about my struggles. And I I was so ready to get sober, I was so, the secrecy and the shame and the hangovers and the drugs weren't working as well anymore. So when I came into the rooms, um, I really wanted to roll up my sleeves and get going. And it's been, it'll be 13 years in uh, February. Um, hasn't always been easy, but I've, I've never had a problem staying over, which I'm thankful for because I just, I knew when I came in, uh, I was ready and I never want to go through early sobriety again. Um, life isn't perfect. Uh, my wife of almost 23 years and I are in the process of separating Uh, That's extremely painful. I've shared with a couple of you. Um, I think one of the things, and I'll I'll finish here in a moment, but one of the things that I've always been afraid to admit is that, you know, we met uh, when I was in active addiction and, you know, I was drinking heavily. I was doing Ritalin, our whole courtship, engagement, married life, I was doing that. And I've been afraid to face the fact that, you know, maybe the decisions I made in addiction were not the decisions that I would have made otherwise. Um, so we're gonna separate and kind of see how that goes. Um, on the positive note, um, I've found a really nice niche in uh, recovery and uh, dealing with uh, impaired healthcare professionals. And that physician health committee that I joined just to see how they handled doctors um, I now chair the committee, and they all know I'm in recovery. And I've I've given talks within our healthcare system to multiple groups of nurses and doctors about addiction. And when a doctor is suspected to be impaired, you know I'm the person they call because you know they don't have anybody else like me. They don't have a physician that's in recovery that can do that. And I've uh, established really nice working relationships and even friendships with the executive director of the state medical board. Um, most states have physician health committees uh, which deal with impaired physicians, and I was uh, voted onto their board of directors a couple of years ago. So, recovery has become such a nice place for me. Uh, it's been a nice professional uh, avenue, um, but life in recovery, as you know, is not always perfect. And um, I think I still have to deal with me. I'm compulsive, I'm anxious, and highly wound. Um, and, uh, you know, again, the separation is going to be a major life change. So I'm going to stop there. I'm sorry to be late. And uh, I, it, I really appreciate the opportunity to share because it, it really is helpful for me to get all this out. Thank you.